This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. It's the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson. All right, Donnie Starkins is here. You are a, a, excuse me, professional speaker. I could actually use some of those skills right now, clearly. A teacher, a personal development coach. Uh, You do lots of classes, workshops, seminars. You also work with a lot of athletes. I was just telling you, I'm such a huge fan of some of your clients. Tyran Matthew from LSU back in the day. We called him the honey badger. They still call him that. They still do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, he's amazing. Um, but before we get into all the stuff that you do now, which obviously we'll go back and talk about that, I was drawn to you. We met on Instagram and I was really drawn to you because of the, the work you do in 12-step recovery and how open you are with your journey. I think that's just such an amazing part. And I love hearing people's stories. I'm also in recovery. And so I resonate a lot with the work you do things you talk about. Um, And this month on the podcast, we're talking about reflection. So obviously, recovery is so based in reflection, looking back at your story, looking at how far you've come, the progress, all of it, the the steps in in and of themselves are just about reflection. So I wanted to go back in. I know for me in recovery, what we talk about is what it was like um, what happened and what it's like now. So I thought maybe we could do that a little bit with your story. And can you start with just telling us what it was like? Yeah, for sure. So I always on our, on our podcast, Darren and I, the first question we ask is growing up for me was like, Mm. right. And we kind of shaped our comeback stories, the questions around that same model of what it, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. So we can shape the story. But for me, growing up was actually easy. It was sports came easy to me. Um, I just felt like my childhood, my parents got divorced when I was seven. I don't remember much of that. I understand there's probably some type of trauma there, but they always made the best out of what could have been a bad situation. And I just grew up playing football, baseball, soccer, played baseball all the way up until my senior year at Arizona State University. And at uh, 15 games into my senior year, I had a massive traumatic knee injury, a knee surgery, 
I had a cadaver transplant of my meniscus. I was the first person in Arizona to ever have this surgery, but the doctor assured me that if all went well, it would be like having a new knee and maybe I would even be able to play again. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I'll medical red shirt and maybe I'll get another shot at it. But the day I woke up from that surgery, I knew baseball was over for me just from the massive signs and scars of trauma. My whole leg was bruised from my hip to my toes. Um, and then the unbearable pain, I just knew it was a wrap. Mm -hmm. And from that day and for many years after my world got turned upside down from a life of an addiction, addiction to pain pills, pain pills are what had its grip on me, um, pain pills, but also if I couldn't get pain pills, Xanax, Valium, just like prescription pills. I did a lot of other drugs also, but really what had its grip on me were the pills and my, my addiction. I mean, it was off and on for a good 10 plus years of just like, you know, just self-destruction, taking down people with me, selfish, self-centered living um, to the point where my life got so bad that I ended up in rehab. And when I got into rehab, I actually started to get really curious about what, what the hell happened to my life. Like I was Mm -hmm. this baseball player. That was my identity, this star athlete. And now I'm a drug addict. Where did it all go wrong? And as I started to dive into the work and I was getting one-on-one therapy and starting to dive into the 12 steps and actually do some inner work, what I uncovered was that I actually didn't want to feel the emotional pain of the loss of baseball, the loss of my purpose, the love of my life. Um, One day it was completely gone and I didn't have any other plan. I didn't have my, my whole identity was wrapped in that. And so I actually didn't want to feel the emotional pain. Yes, there was physical pain. Yes, the doctor prescribed me 80 Percocet a week for a a month straight and then cut me off cold turkey. And so I was set up. I lost baseball, went through a breakup, had to drop out of my classes my senior year because in my mind, I was like, it's my senior year. All I'm going to do is be on crutches. So I'll just study. But I was so messed up and in so much pain, like bedridden for a month straight that I had to drop out of my classes also. So yeah, there was a lot of that type of trauma. But when I stopped, blaming everybody else and just took ownership and took personal responsibility um, and let go of the resentments of the blaming of this doctor who manipulated me of having the surgery and then giving me all these pain pills. When I let go of that whole story and just took ownership, everything really changed for me. And it was like, I didn't want to feel the emotional pain. Mm -hmm. So that's why I numbed out every single day. That's my core wound. It's the loss and the pain of losing my purpose. The only thing I ever knew. How important do you think having a purpose is to our lives? I think it's vital if we want to live. We might continue to live, but are we really living a purpose-driven life? Now, I also believe that our purpose isn't static. It's not something we declare a purpose statement and live by that the rest of our lives. I believe Mm. our purpose is dynamic. It's fluid. But what's consistent and static are, are our natural gifts and talents. And so it's really more about getting crystal clear on what your natural gifts and talents are, and then what are the causes that you believe in? And then how can you use your gifts to be of service? To me, that is like, that's purpose. And how beautiful that my selfish, self-centered living in my addiction, which is the core of my disease, is selfishness and self-centeredness, the disease of addiction, that the antidote is service. Mm. And so I've like been able to find this massive life hack of being able to serve others. And boy, does it help me stay out of my own way when I'm not thinking about myself and just thinking about helping others and to be able to create a cool little career in doing that is is even better. But 
it's all because of my past. My past used to bury me in guilt and shame. Going from this baseball player to a drug addict, that really messed with me for a while. But today it's my best asset. Yeah. By far, the, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And it's wild, but it's only when I became willing to do the work and really owned it and cleaned up like the wreckage of my past. I've heard you say in a podcast before that your mess is your message, which I love. Um, and I also hear you saying when you're talking about your purpose being baseball and like that maybe we can't just make this statement and we're going to have this huge realization of like, this is my life purpose. But how life really works is that you know, we have these passions and these purposes, but they can shift. And so in your story, you had the baseball package as your purpose, but that wasn't in the cards for the rest of your life, maybe, or to even take it to the next level. So what happened? I know you've talked a lot about the pills coming into play, but what happened that helped you get to that shift? Um, my life had, it was like when the pain of staying the same outweighed the pain of change. When I got mm. was so miserable, when my addiction um, was beating me up so bad, that vicious cycle of waking up every single morning and not thinking about the moment I woke up, not thinking about breakfast or any kind of morning routine or going to the gym or even taking a shower. It was reach for the pills, wherever the pills are, because I would wake up and the anxiety would start and the fear would start about just trying to live life on life's terms. And so immediately that cycle would continue, that would start the moment I woke up. So I would need to take my pills on an empty stomach, which the pills would kick in in like 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And I would get like this, like, a, like what a breath does for me today, this calm, like this calm cover over me where now I could go out and step outside my house and not be in fear for a couple hours. And then the pills would wear off and then the cycle would continue. So there was this mental obsession of just being completely um, hijacked and hijacked and dependent and hooked on these pills that it just became so exhausting. And then also the shame and the pain that I was putting my family through, you know, the worry, the sleepless nights for my parents and just like being a liar and just not being an honest person, definitely not being honest with myself. And you get to the point where you feel so crappy about yourself that you don't want to be around anybody. Mm. So you just isolate, right? And then the, then there becomes this like self-pity and this victimization that nobody understands. Nobody understands what I'm going through. This doctor totally screwed me over. When the truth is, a lot of people understood and a lot of people have been in those ex in that exact same position. So I'm always talking about how the only story that matters is the one you tell yourself. And um, I was telling myself that story that I'm alone. You know, I know you had uh, one of my friends and one of our guests that we had on, Drew Robinson. What an mm -hmm. amazing guy, right? And totally. just to, you know, we interviewed him too. And to walk through and to ask those questions, it's like, what is the story you're telling yourself that you mm -hmm. would make that, that the, like, that's like the extreme example, right? That like, I don't want to live anymore. So I'm going to take my life. Now, you know, where our focus goes, energy flows. So like when we continue to keep telling ourselves that story, well, it becomes our reality. And my mine is different than Drew's, but in a sense, it was the same story that nobody understood, which which is total BS. Yeah. There's a lot of people there. And, and that's how cool that today, yes, my mess is my message. And part of being a service is just sharing my story. And yeah, there were shameful things that I did, but you know what? The shame is lifted the more that I just tell my story because I know I'm helping somebody else, not by doing anything crazy, but just being honest about my own story. 
Do you find, uh, I think this is so interesting about addiction, and I think this is shifting a little bit, especially with alcoholism and those buzzwords. I know there's other people I've worked with with sex addiction or different kinds of addiction that are still a little bit like people aren't understanding. But I love what you said about you were taking the pills to outrun the feelings. And I think that is what addiction is, or that's how it's been in my life. My drug of choice is codependency. It's a little bit different, but um, it can look the same. Like I'll stay in a relationship too long because I, I want to outrun the pain of a breakup. And I want to just pretend like it's it doesn't exist or, you know, like stuff it down, stuff it down, stuff it down. And I have my own de- different ways of medicating that. But I think that if a lot of people got honest or if, if we were talking about this more, it's so much more common than we actually realize because we're a lot of us as humans are very scared of the stories and the pain in our head. But as you're saying, the more we speak it out loud or the more we actually take the steps to walk through it, um, maybe we start realizing, wait, this isn't that weird. And of course you would have grief around losing baseball. Like that was what you thought your whole purpose was, right? And so 12-step actually just gives you the place to go say these things out loud and to actually have the tool set to walk through hard feelings that we're all going to face in life. Do you find that with addiction? Like there's still this taboo that people are like, oh, he's an addict versus like looking at it like, man, he's courageous enough to walk through the hard feelings of life. Yeah, absolutely. Although I think it's the stigma has been lifted um, compared to maybe 10 years ago. And it's, it's people like yourself. It's, you know, like Darren, Darren Waller, my co-host on my podcast for him to, speak openly about his addiction Mm. and to, to watch what's happened and unfolded since then, where his teammate, Max Crosby, all pro, um, been two years sober. We're talking about it and celebrating this and making it public. Um, Darren's other teammate, Carl Nassib, who came out as first, um, active player to come out as openly gay. Now he credits Carl was on our podcast too. And he credits, um, Darren for giving him permission. So it's like, you know, to be the lone wolf, to be able to give permission for others. And even though Darren's story is different than Carl's story, Carl felt safe enough to share his story because of Darren's vulnerability. And so this is how we break the stigma. Mm. And yes, addiction comes in, you know, the, the stigma might be more around drugs and alcohol, but my God, I mean, the phone alone is its own addiction, but there's a plenty of other addictions out there. And I think it all stems from our unwillingness to feel like the unwanted stuff. Right. And so like the drugs and the alcohol or whatever addiction is just a symptom, but it's usually something deeper. And it's, it's that we don't, I always ask myself, what am I unwilling to feel? Mm, Right. So in order to heal it, we have to feel it. Yeah. And people don't want to, when unwanted stuff comes up, we don't want to feel it. So we numb it, we suppress it and we push it down. But the body remembers everything. Mm. So it's like what Trent Shelton was on our, on our show. And he said, what we suppress turns into depression and it's true, you know? And so the only way we'll ever really get through it is we have to go through it. We have to walk through the fire. And even though it might be uncomfortable and painful and hard sometimes, Oh, is there like liberation and freedom on the other side of that? But we have to kind of turn and face what we've been running from Right. And, and, and instead and, and turn and face and be able to sit in that the discomfort to actually work through it. And yeah, freedom, freedom is a word for me that runs really deep. And I think willingness and freedom go hand in hand. And the more willing I am to do the work, the more willing I am to serve, the more free I can be. And I don't think it's freedom 
for ourselves, it's freedom from ourselves, like just getting out of our own way. Yes. I think it's so interesting because even what you just said about, we just have to be willing to feel it's like, I think there's probably a lot of people listening that would go, but how? Like, it's not like, it's so interesting to me in our culture that we're not necessarily taught these skills. Like we go to school and we learn about algebra, which, you know, I never use in my life, (laughs) but like I wasn't taught basic skill sets to walk through emotions. Like I'm a feeler. And so I have emotions all the time and I can't contain them necessarily. It's something I've learned to get better at, obviously, but like I wasn't really taught how to navigate that. And I think that that is such a disservice that we do for each other is to not teach these skill sets. Is there one moment that you remember where you did finally go, I'm going to be willing and I'm going to show up and someone gave you the tools to actually start taking that step forward through those feelings? Well, I had a moment of clarity in rehab that first night where I was just like praying to God. I don't even know the God or what I was praying to. I was just so desperate that I said, God, please just tell me what I need to do to get it right this time. Mm. Please. I'm, I'm so willing. Now I had, I had gone to meetings before I would go to meetings to keep my parents off my back because I didn't want to go to rehab and stop my life for 30 days or have this stigma around going to rehab. I didn't want to do that, which I had nothing going on. So like 30 days is not going to be a big deal, but in my story in my head was like, Oh no, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. So the meetings were just to keep my parents off my back, but you know, that obviously didn't work and I wasn't listening in there. But as I laid in rehab that first night and I said, please just tell me what I need to do to get it right. Um, every night at 7 p.m., two people would come in to host a meeting, a 12-step meeting. And that first night, it was a Pills Anonymous meeting. And the the gentleman sharing was saying things like, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps with that sponsor, be of service. And I heard it for the first time. Mind you, I've been going to meetings before and they've been saying all these same things, but I was never hearing it. Yeah. And now I had asked God, please speak to me. So I believe that he, it came through the mouths of those gentlemen sharing in that first meeting. And I knew what I needed to do after day one in rehab. I had plenty of work to do on myself, but I knew what it was going to take once I got out of rehab. And so that was kind of my big moment of clarity. <laughs> and then, you know, in my sobriety, you know, my mom, she was the one that got me into yoga. I teach yoga and mindfulness and meditation and early on when I was suffering in my addiction, dying physically, dying spiritually, my body's a mess. I've had seven surgeries on my left knee, my right hip, my low back, the whole body's just banged up. And um, I would tell my mom, like, yoga's for girls and hippies. I'm not doing that crap. And that was more my mind. I wasn't open-minded. And I finally went one day and I went to that yoga class and I knew I would do yoga for the rest of my life, just from a physical standpoint. But little did I know what it would do for the mind and the soul. But the Mm -hmm. the physical practice gave me access to it. And just because of the reprieve I was getting from my hip and my low back, I was like, oh, my God, this is what I need. So I fell in love with it. And then I'm like, I'm going to go to teacher training and learn about it. Not necessarily knowing if I was going to teach. Once I got into teacher training, I'm like, I got to teach this. I got to share this. This is amazing. And that kind of evolved into yoga, meditation, and then being a coach, being a personal development coach, and then doing some speaking. And, and I get to work with all walks of life from the um, all pro NFL football player to the, you know, the stay at home mom, the empty nester that maybe is, has lost her purpose because her last child has now left the house and she doesn't know who she is because all of her identity was wrapped in being a mom. So I feel like the work the work I might do with my athlete and the work I might do with the, the mom, it's actually all the same. 
it's all the same type of work and it's all around self-love and self-esteem and self-sabotage and values and defining your purpose. So it's just, it's cool. It's like a, it's a universal teaching that I think applies to everybody. And yes, it's the stuff that we didn't learn in school would have been nice, but we did, we didn't get a taste of it then. Maybe we should start those programs. Yeah. (laughs) Well, since you mentioned that, you know, you feel like it's the same for everyone. Why do you think as humans, it's so hard to ask for help or admit we have a problem? I've heard you tell your story and you said you woke up in Mexico. I think it was after an overdose, right? Yes. And you still wanted to tell yourself that you did not have a problem. Talk us through that part of your story. Yeah, I, you know, I would go Mexico. There's a place, Rocky Point, Mexico, near Arizona, the Arizona border. That was like a spring break hangout spot. And that was cool for some years, you know, when you didn't have to be 21 and you could go there when you're 18. But as my addiction progressed, you could go get pills down there, mm-hmm. all the pharmacies, you know, it's like more legal. So I would went down there and took a, a mix of two different painkillers and like my body froze up and um, the friend and I say that in air quotes, that was there with me, uh, left me at the emergency room and called my family and said, your son's at the emergency room at Rocky Point. He overdosed. You need to come get him. Wow. And my brother-in-law and my brother in the middle of the night came and drove to, to Mexico and picked me up, woke up the next morning. And I'm like, I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the insanity of the disease and how delusional I was and, and clearly not ready yet. Right. And so it's like that, you know, I just, everybody's bottom is different and I clearly wasn't ready or willing yet. And it took a few years after that, a a few more years of bad decisions and self-destruction and putting, putting my family through a lot of pain where I finally surrendered and became willing. As an athlete yourself, I mean, I would imagine that you trained a lot and you you know, kind of pride yourself on the practice of all of that and being in control and being such a, I think athletes are very um, disciplined and can kind of like control, control the narrative as much as possible. So was that part of why admitting defeat was so difficult? Yeah. I mean, I used to think humility was a sign of weakness. Right. And again, as an athlete, as a male athlete, I think I was always taught to push through the pain and never let them see you sweat definitely not talk about your emotions Mm -hmm. or talk about what you're afraid of. I mean, that wasn't even in the, my vocabulary. I never had heard anything like that. I was just, it was really all about me, even like service and helping others, even though my mom did a good job and we did a lot of volunteering in my uh, younger years, when I got into like high school and college, it was like all about me. So, yeah, you know, I, I feel like, um, the athlete and the competitive side of me of not willing to like want to show those weaknesses or ask for help. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think that was a sign of strength. And I know today, uh, my coach, David Meltzer, we asked him on our podcast, like, what's the one thing you would tell someone that's struggling that knows they're struggling, um, but doesn't know what to do about it. And he's, his tip to everybody is ask for help. Just keep asking for help. Yeah. You know, and so today I know that and I ask for help in anything I need help with. But back then I just didn't know better and I thought humility is weakness. But today I know it's definitely a sign of strength.
If you know anything about me, you know I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found Cozy Earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's something Drew and I actually talked about, speaking of Drew Robinson, but we um, were talking about the expectation we put on ourselves to just know how to do everything. Like that was one of the narratives that he had a lot with the baseball stuff was just, I should know how to do this, you know, like, or I'm going to play pro and like the the stories I saw of him talking to himself were so mean. The critical voices were just tearing him apart. And it's like, of course he wouldn't know how to do this yet. 
this is his first year of baseball or whatever it was, you know, and I do that to myself too. I just walk into a situation. I expect myself to know how to do it. And that, w- that goes for recovery. I mean, a decade ago when I started recovery in the Anon programs, um, that was a huge defeat for me. And my parents have been telling me, you know, this is in our family. You should probably do this. This would help you. And I was like, no, 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 no. I got this. Didn't got it. <laughs> um, and then even further, my therapist later would give me certain books and I would be like, oh, okay, like I can get on board with codependency, but I'm not a love addict. No chance. Like that is not a word I'm comfortable with. Like I'm not going to dive deeper into that, but it's like it only, you can only get there when you're, you're so willing to admit defeat. And to me, there's so much power in that, in the collapse. And I see that now. And I also see that why asking for help is going to be something I need to do for the rest of my life because how would I know how to do everything? Yeah, and we can't do this thing called life alone. We're not alone, right? And I th- again, I, you know, you hear people in the mental health world reminding everybody else and themselves of that is that we're not alone. We're never alone, and we can't do this thing called life alone. Life's too hard. We're not meant to do it alone, and that's the tricky part with technology and mm. um, the way the world is um, evolving where even though in a sense we are connected from a technology standpoint, there's still this like false feeling of connection because it's not human connection. It's not proximity. It's not the one-on-one conversations, the intimate conversations um, in the same physical space. So it's a, it's a tricky one. Technology is connecting us in many ways, like in this moment right now, me and you talking together, but in many ways, it's also disconnecting us. Mm -hmm. And so I believe the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, And our work is to like really break through all those layers of disconnection that come up in between whatever our practices are. And I mean, for me, I teach this stuff and the phone is still my number one distraction. I'm so much better, but it's still, there's this, um, there's this disconnect when I'm on it and I know I'm on it too long. Like I can feel it. Mm-hmm. I can, like I can be out by the beach and, and being really feeling connected and then come back and grab my phone. And I lose all of that, even though I'm still looking at my phone. So it's like phone things, a tricky one, you know, and I think we have to use it or it's going to use us and have to find that balance of using it to work for us and not against us. Yeah. Well, let's get into the what it's like now, because I have a lot of questions about that with you. Um, So once you started recovery, when did you start to finally see a shift in your life and into your new purpose? I mean, I started to see a shift right away. When I got out of rehab, I think my, you know, my life had gotten so bad that I was so willing. And I just said, tell me whatever I need to do to get it right. You know, my sponsor, I was taking direction. Now, an important part of my story also is that I had three years of sobriety and um, I actually had a relapse. So I had three years of sobriety, a little over three years, but about three years in, I stopped doing the work. I stopped going to meetings. Uh, I stopped working with my sponsor and helping others. And all of these gifts that recovery got me were the same things that pulled me away. Mm. So the job, right? And all the stuff. Um, And so I stopped going to meetings and I actually hurt my knee. I hurt my right knee playing in a softball game. And I had to have a minor, minor surgery on it. And I like nothing compared to these other ones I've had. And I woke up from the surgery and I loved the way that I felt. And six days later, I was back in the doctor's office lying about the pain. 
and taking more painkillers. And that started like another eight month run of just smoking a lot of weed and popping pills again. And um, after having three years of sobriety and knowing everything, and I, and it was like, just like that, it happened. I tell that part of my story because it's so important and it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it's my reminder that the work will never stop. Yeah. Um, it will never, and not even just in sobriety, just the work, the inner work, you know, to keep my freedom and keep my peace. Like I, I want to do it. The work today has become a labor of love and the labor of love is just a lifestyle now. Um, cause I want to be free. Mm-hmm. And I think about how I was not free in the depths of my, uh, of, of my addiction. And so when I catch myself going through the motions, I will remind myself, Donnie, how free do you want to be? And it brings me back to that path. You know, we say we don't want to, we don't um, regret the past, nor do we shut the door on it. And I want to remember that because it actually gets me off my butt and fuels me into action. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a powerful ride, but so that was three years of sobriety relapsing for eight months. And now in May, I'll have another nine years of sobriety. So even though I thank you losing all that time of the three years, by far the best thing that ever happened Mm -hmm. to me. And I always share that part of my story for the person out there that maybe is getting complacent in their own sobriety, that it will creep up on you. And, you know, the obsession will be lifted and it'll be gone as, as long as it's all contingent on your spiritual condition. And then that's like whatever your, whatever your practices are, your morning routines, whatever the things are that allow you to feel grounded, present and alive. That's, that's going to be the key to being free and living a life of, of sobriety, whatever that looks like for you. When you say practices, talk us through some of those tools. I like to give people actual tangible tools that they can take with them that they may resonate with that you use as well. Yeah. So, so my practices, I am so, um, committed to my own morning routine. So morning routine looks like waking up in the morning. Um, first thing I do before my feet hit the ground is I make my bed or no, I, before my feet hit the ground, I think of a few things I'm grateful for. And so after I think of a few things I'm grateful for my feet hit the ground, I, uh, I, sorry, there's a little noise in my background right now. Um, I make my bed. So that's like the two wins, right? I make my bed. Um, and before I've done anything, I've actually have a, a couple wins and then I have some positive momentum going after that. So I try not to look at my phone until I've done my meditation, read my like daily devotionals. I've got like two daily devotionals that I read. Mm-hmm. And then within like the first hour, I'm moving my body, whether I'm going to a yoga class or going to a hit class or F45. Those are kind of like the non-negotiables that I call for my sacred morning. Okay. And really, and I do it in the morning because we have control over our morning. I, you know, it's, it's something we have control over. If you get over it, if you get up at a decent time, you don't have all these distractions coming your way. And so you dial in that morning routine. And um, to me, the rest of the day, I have my foundation and then I can just flow. Why yoga? You talk so much about your yoga practice. You mentioned your mom introduced you to yoga many years ago. Um, I also love yoga, but I have also found um, 
the way it's been popularized and just, I don't know. I think you've called it the Instagram yoga. There is a difference between a, a certain kind of yoga practice. I do actually specific breath work practice with a lady ju- that's called bhakti yoga, but it's not yeah. what people know about yoga as seen on Instagram. So can you talk us through why yoga resonates so much with your internal um, journey? Yeah, I think for me, yoga is such an essential part of my own recovery mm-hmm. because I believe, again, in the power of the mind-body connection and that the body remembers everything or that our issues are in our tissues. And so like when we have trauma, guilt, shame, all this, all these things that we pick up just from being a human being, it's in your body. And on an energetic level, if you don't actually move your body with intention and move through that, it remains stuck. Mm -hmm. And that stuck energy becomes heavy. And I believe it eventually leads to disease. That's where most of our disease comes from. It's from the stress and the repression and just suppressing things down. And so the yoga, when you move and you breathe mindfully, you move energy. Energy can't be destroyed, but it can be shifted. And so as we move and breathe with purpose, we free up those sticky parts of our body, like that tension that you might be feeling in your shoulder or your neck. That's coming from our thoughts. It's coming from stress. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't have practices where we're moving our body, this is the stuff that weighs the body down. It's very heavy and it's dark energy and it keeps us stuck. And so again, it's about freedom, right? And I believe like people struggle with meditation and they say, oh, like when people find out I teach meditation, they say, I can't meditate. My mind never stops thinking. And I say, nobody's does. So you give your mind something to focus on. And when your, your mind leaves, you come back. And every time you come back, it's like doing a rep with a free weight. Your mind is getting stronger because you've noticed it left. And it's this constant returning to your center, or coming back home to the body or coming back home to the heart, really. And so the yoga pr- can provide this moving meditation. And I love the style of yoga that I practice and also teach that adds in really good music. Like music that, I mean, one of the coolest parts about being a teacher is you get to be the DJ too. And you get to pick for me music. Like I feel like really steady, solid, like an EDM type music that has a good pace to the breath creates this like amazing experience. Um, So I think the combination of that, it's like the opportunity to go inward and create this moving meditation that unhooks us from all of the stories and all of the things that like basically hijack our lives. So it's a way back home to your body. Our body knows where home is, but it's our mind that takes us down these roads that makes us Mm. feel so disconnected and homeless. So the breath brings us back. The breath is the access point to the mind-body connection. And it's the access point to the present moment. Yes. So we have to learn how to, if we want to learn how to live the right way, we have to learn how to breathe the right way. When we learn how to breathe the right way, we start to think the right way. And then our living and our thinking kind of come in an alignment with like our core values of the essence of who we really are. Yeah. It's so interesting. When I started working with my breathwork coach, um, I didn't realize how much I was just holding my breath even. Like I actually wasn't breathing. I was so tight and just like this rigid, I think it was a fear thing, anxiety. It's the way that I just hold it is like to stop breathing. And she would be like, breathe, just pause and breathe. And that practice in and of itself has really helped me get more in touch with my body. I always say now, like my last six months has really been a journey of learning to trust my body and not my mind because my mind gets super distorted. And that for me is where my addiction will start to run the show. 
Um, but my body always knows. It knows when I'm in a situation that I don't need to be in. It knows when I'm going down the wrong path. It just knows. And so being in touch with my body is such an important part of my healing journey just for that reason. But I do think it's difficult in our go, go, go society to, to do that. So I think your morning practice is a really good tool set to set that intention for the rest of your day. Yeah, it's the foundation. And if it's not there, what I used to do is I would wake up in the morning and grab my phone. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to shift something because I was basically a shit show. I don't know if we can cuss on this. Yes, podcast, for it. Like, <laughs> yeah. So like I would wake up in the morning and just be like easily distracted, tension in my my neck, mm-hmm. easily irritated, um, just kind of all over the map. And I had a coach guide me through this visualization. Um, and then I shifted it and I started to make some space and I started with something really small, like five minutes before looking at my phone. And then I started to just add things. So there'd be space before I went to distraction and Mm. reaction and responding. But I'm telling you that phone today, still to this day, will sit there like crack, you know, especially there's like a, uh, like a reply or some, an opportunity or something that I know is in my inbox, but I can say no. And, you know, I always say the most self-confident people are the ones that keep the promises they Mm. make to themselves. And so this is a huge commitment for me to say no. And also because this is what I teach and coach and I can only take my people as far as I'm willing to go. So for me not to follow through on this, I feel like I'd be a fraud if I didn't, if I didn't stick with these commitments. Yeah. You know, I just did a 21 day detox. um, And, you know, I live by myself here in California and day 19 and day 20, I'm like, Oh, what's 20. What's what's I can have a little bit of something or a dessert tonight. It's the, it's the 19th night. I'm like, no, like this is something, this is follow through. There were mm-hmm. so many things that I didn't finish, you know, like in my addiction, didn't finish what I started. And so like, instead of being shame in shame from that, that's kind of what I, what I used to, to finish. Like I remind myself, no, finish what you start. If you start that book, finish it. If you say you're going to do something, do it. It's like being impeccable with your word from the four agreements. The most, you know, the people that struggle with self-esteem or are very vulnerable to the noise, the internal noise and other people's opinions or Mm -hmm. projections most likely have broken a lot of promises they made to themselves Mm. because they haven't been impeccable. Right. So like you don't even trust yourself. Right. And you're second guessing. Well, then you're so much more vulnerable. It's like fertile ground to the noise. But if you're dialed in and you know who you are and you figured out your core values and you're actually living by those all that other noise just starts to fall away. Wow. But it's a practice and it's a a practice practice. and what we practice grows stronger. And a lot of us get in the practice of getting really good at being distracted and going really quick, right? In yoga class, it's I'll watch students who struggle to slow down and they it's uncomfortable. So they don't do it. Well, of course, because you're so used to going quick, Mm -hmm. but there's a, the, the gift is to slow down. And actually when we slow down, we have more control. Another mantra I always use is I don't have time to rush because I don't know about you, but like where I am, the worst version of myself is when I'm rushing Yes. When I'm rushing around, like it all goes out the window. And so like, I have to have these little anchors and pattern interrupts to redirect my focus and remind me like, you got to slow down. Bean dad, the dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. 
Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Speaking of when I get self-centered and selfish, it's when I'm rushing usually. Because I like mm. I, I can only focus on the goal. So whatever comes in the way, whether it's a person, their needs, whatever it is, when I'm rushing, I can't consider any of that. And my empathy goes out the window or my compassion, even even for myself. So I do I do agree with you, the rushing. Um, let's talk a little bit about your coaching practice because you're talking a lot about your um certain practice or your specific practices yourself. And I do love that you say, I can't teach something I'm not practicing because I believe that too. So how did you transition into actually making this into a business? And what does that look like? Yeah. So about five years ago, I was teaching around 20 yoga classes a week, like public classes. Then I had my private stuff and some of the things I was doing with the Phoenix Suns and some athletes back in Phoenix. Um, but I had the, the, you know, the foresight to say, I, I don't want to be teaching 20 classes five years from now. And I've been doing a lot of work with Lululemon and was uh, an ambassador for them. And they're all about the personal development. And mm. there's so much more than just like selling exp- expensive stretchy pants. Like their company is rooted in some solid values and yoga principles and they live by those. And so I got a big taste of personal development working with them. And ended up being able to lead the the company's internal personal development program called Purpose and Practice. 
And I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the work. And so I just, I knew coaching would be that, that like nice transition of, since I had the kind of the following and the network of people anyways, that, and I was coaching people anyways, talking to people after class that it was like such a seamless transition where I was actually able to do both, you know, and as, as time went on, I scaled back and don't teach near as much yoga anymore. I still teach, moved to California like four months ago, and I wanted to integrate into the community here. So I'm teaching classes again to like meet new people and bring them into mm-hmm. my world and some of the stuff that I do. And so, yeah, I have a, a, a 90 day coaching program. It starts as a 90 day pro- program and most, most clients just keep, keep working with me, which is nice, but it's called the shift. It's transformation of the mind, body, soul. And it ties in the, the pillars of mindfulness, um, self-love community. I mean, these are the three main things that we're focusing on and we dive into topics again, like self-confidence, self-esteem, self-sabotage values, goals, um, again, mission statement boundaries is a big one, right? Like teaching people how to treat us. And so I love that work. I love the work, especially even with the athletes, it's the same work. A lot of the stuff that I do specifically with athletes isn't for on the field. It's actually for all the other stuff because we're all getting pulled in a thousand different directions, but athletes have a lot of people who want a lot of things from them, including their own family. Um, lots of, you know, whether it's agents and scouts and media. And so if they don't have the tools, techniques, and practices to find their center, then they're just going to feel like they're being pulled in all those different directions. And so to be able to give them grounding techniques and, and, and mindfulness and meditation practices to be able to return to the center and also set boundaries yes. for athletes and all of us, but athletes having to set boundaries with their own family members around certain things. So important. And what that does is then it gives them the energy to be able to prepare the right way. Cause the level of your, you know, your performance is determined by the level of your practice or your preparation. So if they're worried about all this at home stuff and the stresses of their families, right. Then it does affect their, um, their practice or their, their, um, preparation, which affects their performance. So it's giving them tools, all these tools that we didn't get, um, allowing them to work through those tools so that they can be the best version of themselves as they prepare for on the field. And that goes for anybody in any career, actually. Do you see a lot of athletes? Um, because I know we talked about Tyran earlier, who obviously has a huge comeback story. Do you feel like that is something that you specifically find in a lot of the athletes you work with is that they're really struggling to navigate real life living, the pressures of being this professional athlete, like, what does that look like? I mean, it's, I have a lot of empathy for all of them Mm -hmm. because even though on the outside and what we see on the field, especially as a football player where they're armored up in their equipment and their helmets that we don't even really see them as human beings. Mm. And I get to see them in such a different light where I actually have, you know, so I have a ton of empathy. And people think, you know, they have all this money that everything's all great, but it's not always the case. Some oftentimes it's more money, more problems or more distractions or, you know, never, never um, satisfying everybody or a family member. One family member gets the money. The other one doesn't get money. And now they're all, it's like this, this not enough, like they can never do enough for their families. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure, you know, and if you have, um, if you have one of these athletes that doesn't have any of these tools, well, it became, it becomes a very um, chaotic inner world for all of them. 
And for many of us, at least in my experience of myself and the people that I coach, athlete or non-athlete, we have this not enough story, mm-hmm. right? Like there's not good enough, not pretty enough. Like, you know, Darren's story is um, his, the first question, you know, when we ask what child, what your childhood was like, and for him, it was confusing because he wasn't, he wasn't black enough for his black friends because he was different and played in the band and hung out with white people and grew up in a white neighborhood. So his core wound, and he wouldn't mind sharing this because he shared it publicly, is that he's not enough. Mm. It's the same thing. It's rooted in the not enough story. That's why I have these shirts and I lead retreats called Love Yourself because, you know, until we can truly love ourselves, flaws and all, um, until we can get to that place, we'll just continue to seek for it outside of ourselves to try to fill a void we can't fill ourselves. Yeah. And so we, at some point, we have to be enough. Mm. You know, we have to, we have to love ourselves. We have to have our little mantras and reminders that we're, we're doing good work. That doesn't mean we don't step up and keep ourselves accountable, but at some point we have to be enough. Cause if you're a lot of people get very, very successful and make a lot of money, business leaders with that same story, the not enough story. So even though they have all that stuff, if they're feeling like they're not enough, they're not happy. No. And so you have the, you have the bum on the street, you know, the homeless person on the street that has the not enough story. And then you have the billionaire that has the not enough story. It's the same story. It just took them in different places. And so we want to get to a place of um, inner peace Mm -hmm. and contentment where we can be comfortable in our own skin. And if we're not, then we'll just, we'll numb out. We'll find a way to numb out. Yeah. I just love so much hearing about, and this is one of the reasons I really loved listening to your podcast was that, and this is, we'll talk a little bit about it. It's called the comeback story or comeback stories. And you do this with Darren Waller, who we mentioned a couple of times, but the reason it's so good to me is that it's sort of like what you mentioned earlier, where when you started telling your story, you realized you're not isolated in any of the things that you're going through. And I do deeply believe that we're all connected. But what you just described, like the homeless man versus the professional athlete, we look at these accolades. And especially when someone's so successful on this huge scale and they look like they have the money, they're on TV, they're, you know, very famous. And people just dehumanize them in in some capacity I have found. And this happened to me, actually, when I was on TV for a while, it was like, all of a sudden, I wasn't human anymore to people. And oh, I had signed up to do this show. So that meant something about me that what was happening didn't affect me in a certain way. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. And so I love hearing these stories, especially like what you just said. It's like this guy who is so successful and um, has all the things everyone thinks they would want struggles with the same thing that I struggle with every day of I'm not enough as I am. Like I've got to go earn it. And that is such a beautiful thing. So let's talk a little bit about the podcast, because I think you guys do such a good job of telling those stories and bringing the um, the likeness, the humanness to these people who I think we put on these pedestals as superhuman. Mm, yeah, comeback story. So Darren and I started it. Um, it's been just over a year and a half. The first episode was um, right before the pandemic started. Okay. Yeah. So um, we didn't know what we were doing. We just knew we wanted to share stories and, and, and have people tell their comeback stories because everybody has a comeback story and we know everybody loves a comeback story. And so our mission has been to reach as many people as possible to remind them that they're not alone. 
And so when we have all walks of life on there, it's not just athletes, it's everybody. And it's different versions of a comeback story. It's not just addicts. It's, I mean, it's, it's all over the map. And so when, when people can hear, there's no greater feeling than when I'm, you know, we're in an interview and you have, um, you know, we haven't released this episode yet, but Michael Phelps, we did an interview with him and him sharing his struggles, even to this day. Wow. There's no better feeling that for me to sit back and listen to this and this guest who everybody thinks is the, you know, the best athlete of all time, the most mentally strong that still struggles. Mm. Like, this is exactly why we did this, right? This is why Darren sharing his story, you know, from the world's view, he looks like the masculine from some people's perspective of what masculinity is, this football player, massive guy. And it's like, no, like he's sharing, he's sharing. We don't, we don't even talk about football on the podcast. We don't even go there. We talk about what we're afraid of and our emotions and loving ourselves. Like those are the conversations that we're having. And so, yeah, I believe that it humanizes, um, you know, people, um, we had Carson Daly on who, you know, he talked about 75% of the voice, the show is pre-recorded and then 25% is live. And he says, if you watch any of the live shows, I have my hand in my pocket and I'm gripping my leg because I'm so riddled in anxiety because he's been outspoken about mental health and his own anxiety. Wow. And after all these years of being on TV, he still struggles with it. And so to hear just all these different walks and all these different areas of life, but share this common struggle. And, you know, I think we're all the same. We all have pain and we all have struggle. And it's actually pain that connects us. Pain mm -hmm. is part of the shared human experience even though my pain might look different than your pain, this is actually what connects us. Completely. And so I think that's like the magic of, of comeback stories is when people can hear like, wow, he's going through that, all this stuff that he did and he has the same struggle. And then once I can see myself in you, then it bankrupts the story of I'm, I'm all alone. Nobody understands, which is like, no, that's not true. And then from there that like, that allows us to feel a sense of connection, even in our darkest pain. Yeah, there's so much hope in that that narrative to me. I'm I'm literally sorry. I'm in shock thinking about the Carson Daly thing because I've had clients do the show and I've watched him do it. And he's such a pro. I would have never known that. Which is that's what's so cool about this podcast. Yeah, and such uh, a cool guy and just a normal, amazing, just a normal yeah. dude, normal totally. dude who's like open and honest. And cool thing about our podcast and just like I'm having this conversation with you, all. All we're doing is having like the most meaningful conversations ever. Like one of my core values is meaningful relationships, mm -hmm. but in order to have meaningful relationships, you have to have meaningful conversations. Mm -hmm. so that's what we get to do. Like I'm having with you right now. Like I can talk about this shit all day long. Same. It's like what sets my soul on fire. And again, if I have to share a little bit of my messy past, it's okay. Yeah. Cause this is like, this is what matters. And if it helps one person, you know, that's enough. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, 
A character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My best friend and I have been saying um, that we're done with small talk. This is kind of like our new mantra. (laughs) But like, I can't do it. I don't know if it was the pandemic or just a lot of the other things I went through in the last couple of years, but like I'm at capacity with small talk. I don't know. I don't have the space for it anymore. It just drains me. I'm just done. So unless you want to talk about something real or like how I actually am or how you actually are, we probably don't need to like even go there. You know, I mean, there's time and a place in business maybe, but like, that's it. Yeah. I just was having a conversation yesterday with a friend and I said the same thing. Like I want to cringe or run when small talk happens, but what's cool is, you know, they say your vibe attracts your tribe. So the more that you're in this work and having these conversations, like that small talk doesn't even really come around much anymore because you're surrounded with, with the people that you, that are, that are willing to go there and drop in yeah. and have deep, meaningful conversations. So you don't even really have to worry about it. It kind of just bounces off it's of you. It doesn't come near you anymore. What made you want to start telling your story publicly? Because, you know, that's something that I'm also just now starting to navigate. Like I said, I've been in recovery for a decade. I've never talked about it publicly. And one of the hard things around that for me was the anonymity of the program. And so, you know, I grew up in a house where 12 step was very, it was active and, um, but we just never talked about it with anyone else. And so talking about it now, I'm like fumbling through it, but I feel very, um, led to do that. And because I've developed sort of this community of people, it's like, well, if I'm not telling that part of my story, it's not me living in my truth either, because it's a huge part of my life. So what made you want to start doing that? And then how did you get past the anonymity part of recovery? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I didn't share this part of my, my story, but I, I did some leadership work, some training under uh, Sean Korn. She's a uh, uh, she's been on our on our podcast too. She's one of my greatest teachers. Has become one of my friends. She to me is a legendary yoga teacher, but not 
not the Instagram yoga, the like real yoga, the yeah. mind body. She's the one that taught me like um, the, the power of the mind body connection and really made yoga make sense for me, but also taking yoga off the mat. So from a leadership standpoint and service, and she, I went to her leadership training and she was had us in this like deep hip opener, right? We, our hips, we spend a lot of time in our hips in yoga because the hips are like a junk drawer for a lifetime of just tension mm -hmm. and where we suppress a lot of our energy. And so she had us in this pose and she said the words, how dare we not? And those words to me, it like hit me right in the heart. And it was like, how dare I not share my story? Mm. There's people dying out there. I was teaching in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there's a lot of money out there and people driving nice cars and looking like on the outside, they have it all together. But I know people are dying on the inside. So how dare I not share my story? As I started to teach and build my following in yoga, I was like really wanting people to like me and wanting to build a following. So I wasn't going to let everybody know my story. But as she said those words, it was like, how dare I not share my story? And so we were tasked with going back into our community and creating a service project. And I started this, this uh, monthly, we would do this yoga event at the resorts out in Scottsdale. Uh, and I call it Sunday Yoga Service. And on the first um, um, event that we did, I shared my story. And, and from that day, everything changed. It's so wild. Like I found my voice. Um, it humanized me as a teacher. People were like that, that could relate and were sending me messages about how, you know, just one month ago, one lady had lost her husband to alcohol and the words that I was sharing, like helped her heal. And I'm like, whoa, mm. all of the things I was worried about, like people thought about me and the judgment of my messy past, like all of those things were, were everything that I needed to be sharing. And so it was her words, how dare we not? And then it was me getting into action and walking through that and, and being vulnerable in that first time and sharing my story. Now, that's part of like when I speak or do an event now, well, I'll share my story and people will come up and say, thank you for being so vulnerable. I'm like, that's, it's not vulnerable to me today, but I understand that it, it gives, it activates the event or the retreat or whatever we're doing because it gives people permission to do the same. So as they hear my story, they feel safe enough to also open up and it creates these like experiences like no other, because they're hearing it from me and hearing the rawness of me, you know, giving them permission to do the same. Yeah. And so that's, that's really um, where I think I found my voice. I found my purpose and, and the yoga became so much more than just a physical practice and figuring out ways that I could be of service. And, and I think for me, that was, that was the moment, just being able to hear those words, how dare we not, and then actually doing something about it. And it changed everything for me. It's wild. I don't think I would be connected to Tyron and be connected to Darren if I wasn't open because we have a common bond. We have messy pasts, mm -hmm. right? And so like, I think, you know, pro athletes have a lot of trust issues, rightfully so, because they have a lot of people wanting a lot of things. And so if they can trust me, cause they know I've maybe been there, maybe not played at the level they have, but I've been through some shit, a lot of it's self-inflicted, um, that there's a level of trust there that I don't think I would have. So the anonymity to me is like, I don't care about it. For me, it's way more important to share my story Mm -hmm. And it's validated every single day with just, you know, I don't necessarily need the feedback, but when I can get a message that like, you know, Darren and I's Instagram live or our podcast that we're doing is help someone get sober. It's like, of course, like I have a duty and a responsibility and it's, it's part of my purpose today. So um, I know some people want, we want to honor that anonymity towards that, towards their own recovery. But for me, 
I need to, I need to be telling people and I'm not throwing it up all over everybody. It's yeah. just part of my story. Yeah. I totally resonate with that. And for a while I did need the anonymity while I like found my way, you know, and, and I think it's just, that has been more ingrained in me. And so it's kind of getting to this place of like, okay, I'm going to just take the conversations that I've been having for many, many years and just say them out loud. Because at this point, like, I don't feel like I have anything else to lose. It's just sort of like jigs up. Here it is. Yeah. And once we, once we, um, it's amazing how like the more that we tell that we run our story back in our heads, we think it's this big deal and there's all this like shame around it. Right. And it's like, we almost have to make, we we continue to make ourselves pay for the same mistake over and over again, because we keep going back to it and we become over identified with the past. Right. But like you're sharing your, and I'm looking at you going like, that's no big, probably no big deal compared to the stuff that I went through in my own drug addiction. Right. But like we keep judging ourselves for it and for our past. But if you just know how many people you're going to be able to help because of Mm -hmm. the platform that you have, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to say it's your duty, but you have the stage and you have the platform. And um, the fact that you'll just be able to help so many people um, moves most of us into action. Yeah. Well, speaking of being in touch with your body, it's like my body will not let me not tell it now. And so it's like, okay, I'm just going to lean in. We'll see what happens. So it's so beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. And I, I always use the, uh, I don't know if you saw the Mr. Rogers with the Tom Hanks, but one of the questions that's so good, like he's the ultimate yogi and like present. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's Mr. such a good Rogers message was? there. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. So that, I did not know that. Was, won't you be my name? Na- won't you be my neighbor? Yeah. Yeah. But it is so good. And what he says, somebody asked him, how do you do this every single day? Um, you know, every single day you're filming. And he says, well, I just look into the camera and I think about that one kid who's struggling. And if I can talk mm. to that one kid. So when I'm doing like putting my phone up and staring at my face, doing an Instagram video, and I'm like, oh, I don't really want to do this. That I just remember those words like that one, if you can just reach that one person, then you've done enough. Mm-hmm. And so how cool that this is the way that we can use tech technology to like make a positive impact. Absolutely. The way that the, the tech had that way that technology has helped even just connecting with people. Like I know we talked about the disconnection, but I mean, I wouldn't have met you. There's so many people from across the world even that I get messages from nowadays. And I'm like, wow. I mean, just the, I love feeling like, God, we really are not different. None of us, we all are connected and there's so much beauty. Like the mess, the mess is your message. Everyone has a mess, everyone, whether you're willing to admit it or not. But like, there might be people listening to this podcast that are like, yeah, okay, cool for y'all. But like, I don't identify or whatever, but we'll be here whenever y'all get ready. Like, That's just how I feel at this point, because everyone has a mess. It's just whether or not you're willing to acknowledge it or do something about it. So true. And I think until we get to the, until we get to the wound, right. I believe that like we meditation, I have a Buddhist monk friend who talks about meditation being about getting to the root of the problem and digging it out and healing ourselves. So until we can get to the root of the wound, whatever the wound is, we all have it. We all have, you know, trauma and past, even Mm -hmm. though they look thick and they look completely different only until we can get to the, to the wound center of it only then, or, only until we can own the wound, can we write the ending of our story. 
Otherwise the own base, the the wound basically owns our life Mm. and we're making decisions in the present moment that all have to do with the past. And so we can like shine the light of awareness onto it, which awareness is what loosens the grip in a natural way. Um, Until we can go there, only then can we write the ending. Otherwise we're just like, again, we're being hijacked by an old story. And for many people, they'll live their whole lives like that. And that breaks my heart. And it also fuels me into action mm-hmm. to uh, remind people to, to do their work and um, just be open and honest about my own story. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this. You guys, I'm telling you, this podcast is so great. Comeback Stories, can, tell the people where they can find it. Is it anywhere you listen to podcasts? It's anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere, any platform. We'll be back recording live. There's plenty of episodes. We'll be back recording in a month. We record out of the wind. Uh, Blue Wire Media at the Wynn Hotel in Vegas. Got a really cool podcast studio there, but there's plenty of episodes to catch up on. Um, Yeah, some pretty epic guests, all walks of life. And it's just us having real meaningful conversations, people telling their their stories. We all have one. And what if people are interested in coaching? Where else can they find you? Yeah, my website is just my name. It's donnystarkins.com. It's Donnie with a Y. My Instagram is um, Donnie underscore Starkins. And you could go there and find, I lead retreats. I got a retreat in Sedona, Arizona coming up May 13th through the 15th. I usually re- lead like four retreats a year. And so I'm, I'm in the community, usually doing something, traveling a little bit. And then the coaching is all virtual. So it's one-on-one. Um, and yeah, I've got, I've got space for a few coaching clients right now. If anybody's down, uh, I'm down to do the work with you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been an honor. You are really good at what you do. Keep, uh, keep doing your thing. Keep speaking your voice. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson, where we believe everyone has a little velvet and a little edge. Subscribe for more conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. Search Velvet's Edge wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.